couple of weeks ago, we began a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we made it to the Great Sermon on the Mount. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at one verse today. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. If you're reading from the Pew Bible, it's page 958 uh, in the Pew Bible. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 4. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we recognize that we are about to examine the most significant teaching that we believe Jesus ever gave. Uh, these words have had impact upon nations for years. It's easy for us to study them on Sunday morning and then forget all about them on Monday. But God, we recognize there's profound truth here that you want us to know and appreciate. We pray today then that you'll enable us to penetrate this truth, to understand it, to come to the point where we may be able to see how it is that we can apply it directly to our lives and then this week to be able to enjoy the benefit that is ours when we live according to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This last week I discovered that there is a city in China, Neijing, uh, that has uh, opened up a cry bar. The only thing you find in this cry bar is one sofa, a few tables, and lots and lots of tissue. Uh, what the uh, owner, uh, one Lu Yong, discovered is that in pe people in China would pay for the privilege of being able to go someplace to cry. So for $6 an hour, you can go to his cry bar and cry. Obviously, buying drinks is extra, uh, but for $6 an hour, you can cry. Uh, to my amazement, I found out that in the Far East, there have been cry bars that have been cropping up all over uh, the Far East where people pay for the privilege of going someplace where they can literally cry in their beer. Uh, obviously, what that suggests is that across the world, we haven't figured out how it is that we can deal with joy and happiness. And in America, don't know that we haven't figured out all that well either. Because I came across this article about New York City, that in New York there are 8 million cats and 11 million dogs. Now think about it. If there are 8 million cats, 11 million dogs, what do you do when your cat dies? Well, there aren't a lot of places in your backyard where you can dig up earth. Uh, New York is mostly concrete and blacktop. And so most folks don't know what to do when your pet dies. So the city of New York... I uh, came up with a service where for $50, uh, you could have a representative from the New York Public Health Department come out and take your cat or dog and dispose of it for you. Well, uh, there are entrepreneurs everywhere. And there was a lady in New York City who decided that she would uh, create her own service for the residents of New York uh, for the meager price of $25, half the going rate of New York City. She would dispose of your cat or dog lovingly, of course, uh, for you. And what she did is that she went down to the Salvation Army and for $2 bought an old suitcase. And then she would come to your home and she would put your beloved pet uh, in her suitcase and then, you know, carry it off lovingly uh, to the uh, New York City subway station where she would put the suitcase down and then stand back from him a little bit of distance and look the other direction. And sure enough, if she waited long enough, there would be an enterprising thief that would come along pick up the suitcase, run off, and then she would cry out, thief, thief, to make sure they'd run harder. And then, of course, I mean, wouldn't you love to have been there when the thief opens the suitcase and sees that smelly, decaying animal? 
Obviously, in America, we are pursuing happiness, not knowing where to find it. And part of that is probably because when we mourn and grieve, we don't know what to do with that either. And so as we continue with Jesus Christ upside down thinking, we come to one of the most radical thoughts of all. Where Jesus, in effect, says, happy are the sad. And you say, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That can't be true. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How on earth can that possibly be true? And that'll be our challenge this morning to see if we can examine more precisely what Jesus Christ is saying in this beatitude to see if we can't figure out how it can be true for us Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday uh, this next week. When I first looked at this passage, the first part of the week, my immediate reaction was that what Jesus Christ was talking about here uh, are those of us who don't know Christ as our personal savior. And what he's suggesting is we need to come to the point where we mourn our sin that is keeping us from Christ. And once we mourn our sin, confess our sin, come to faith in Jesus Christ, well, then we're going to be comforted. Now, the problem I had with that thought this last week was that as I considered it, I said, well, that's uh, wonderful for those of us who are not Christians yet. Uh, there's a message here for uh, everyone who's in the world who doesn't know Christ. But uh, for the majority of us who come here on Sunday morning and uh, as we've done surveys, about 90 percent of our audience on Sunday morning knows Jesus Christ as their personal savior. And so for the rest of us, the 90 percent, you can say, well, good that you've done that. And now I'm speaking to the 10 percent who may not know Christ uh, today. As I've studied this passage more carefully, particularly asking myself, so how did Jesus Christ mourn? He's the one that gave us this. How did Jesus Christ mourn? And then thinking beyond that, the Apostle Paul wrote so much of the New Testament. How is it that the Apostle Paul mourned? Is there anything we can learn through the example of Jesus and the example of Paul that might help us understand what this means to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And uh, thinking about Paul and Jesus forms the substance of what I want to talk about today, because I can say I was wrong in my early thinking that this is just about those of us who may not know Christ yet and the challenge for us to pray to receive Christ, ask forgiveness for our sins so that we can be comforted. Now, with that as an introduction, I want to make uh, two basic observations today. We're not going to be happy until we mourn. That's the first thing I'm going to talk about. And secondly, we're not going to be happy until we are comforted. It's kind of law and gospel here. If you see what Jesus Christ is doing, uh, the law is the mourning part. The gospel is the comforting part. And uh, both those go together before we're going to be blessed or happy. So it's not just, you know, if we are sad sacks, the Bible is saying you will be happy. Uh, the comforting is a very important part of this, but the comfort comes after the morning. So what does it mean to mourn? The word that is translated uh, mourn only appears a handful of times in the New Testament. Uh, it appears a couple times uh, where uh, we see people mourning death in Mark 16:10 and Matthew 9:15. That shouldn't surprise us. Uh, any of us who've lost a loved one, particularly someone very, very close to us, know that kind of mourning and grief. And it shouldn't surprise us this word is used in the New Testament to describe that kind of pain. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 18, in three verses in Revelation 18, uh, there is a uh, reference to mourning a city uh, that is uh, that is dead. And then finally, <coughs> in um, Luke and Corinthians and in James, 
uh, we see that it is mourning sin. Now, most New Testament commentators will zero in on this one and say at at a minimum, when Jesus Christ is saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Obviously, sin's got to be here somewhere. There's something about mourning sin as a Christian or as one who is about to be a Christian uh, that ought to bring us comfort. So uh, let's uh, drill a little deeper into that one. So uh, what kind of sin are we supposed to mourn that's going to give us comfort? Well, first thinking about the example of the Apostle Paul. In writing the book of Romans, he writes Romans as a Christian. Uh, The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of death or this body of death? And then, of course, blessed be that God through Christ Jesus has, has done this. Uh, But the Apostle Paul, as a believer, is looking at himself as a Christian and he's mourning the fact that as a Christian, there's still sin in his life. He talks about the struggle between the old man and the new man throughout uh, his epistles and acknowledges that he doesn't want to lose that battle between the old man and new man. But there are times when he feels like he's losing the battle. The other verse in Romans chapter seven, verse 19, the good that I would, I I do not do. And that which I would not is the very thing that I do. And so Paul is struggling with his own behavior, saying, I want to be more like Jesus Christ. I want to grow. I want to conquer sin. But I continually am defeated by it. What am I going to do? And, of course, the what that he is going to do is to recognize he needs power from the Holy Spirit of God. As you go on to chapter eight of the of the book of Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul says, if you try to tackle the sin problem as a legalist, I'm just going to try harder and try harder and try harder. Good luck. Because legalists are doomed to fail. But if we recognize that we're failing as Christians in our sin and we want to do something better, we want to become more like Christ. Well, then you humbly come before God. You rely upon the power of the spirit of God that you need. And then God will give you victory. That's basically what Paul says in the book of Galatians. Uh, That's what he says in the book of Romans, especially as he gets to his great teaching in Romans chapter eight. So with that, you know, we can say here that 90 percent of us who know Christ. Have you been mourning for sin lately? And as I thought about this this last week, again, thinking about this personally, you know, one of the problems I have is that we all love grace. We like to hear about grace. Um, and you, you've heard the song we sing about grace. Oh, free from the law, oh, happy condition. Now I can sin and there is no perdition. So we sing that song and we don't think about our sin because we live in grace now. So just go ahead and keep on sinning. What does Paul say to that? Should I continue in sin that grace may abound? What does, God, what does Paul say? God forbid. God forbid that I would do that. I need to grieve my sin. I need to be able to say there is a better life for me. What's he saying in the book of Ephesians? Part of the problem for some of us as Christians is we don't know what's going on in heavenly places. That there's a battle going on for our marriage and a battle going on for our family. A battle going on for our walk in Jesus Christ. And God has given us all power and all riches and all might in heavenly places. So claim what is yours through Christ Jesus because you can. You don't have to live a defeated life. So claim the life in Christ that is yours. That's Paul's struggle. He says, by God's grace and through the power of the Spirit, I'm going to claim that life. And it starts with me mourning my sin. If I'm not in any way ready to say a wretched man that I am and longing for something more, well, I'm probably not going to be motivated to receive the comfort that I can get when the Spirit of God gives me those riches and power and might 
that Paul promises that we can get in, uh, in Ephesians. Well, again, thinking on my journey this last week, I talked about the example of Paul. What do we learn about Jesus? The last two references are to Jesus Christ. Uh, if there's a memory verse that uh, if you're in third, fourth grade, you hope that your teacher assigns you uh, the best memory verse to memorize in the entire New Testament would be. Help me out here. You all know it. Let's say it together. Jesus wept. John 11:35. You know, you're hoping that's the that's the verse you get assigned. And we ask ourselves in John 11:35, when Jesus is weeping, what is it that is motivating Jesus to cry? He's going to the tomb of Lazarus. And if you look at what precedes him going to the tomb, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he knows Lazarus is about to rise. So he comes to the tomb and he's weeping at the tomb. It can't be because he's afraid he's never going to see his friend alive again because he knows he's going to raise him from the dead. We already read that in the text. So why is it that Jesus Christ is weeping? Well, the only conclusion I can draw is that Jesus Christ sees Mary and Martha, two of his friends who are grieving. He sees the effect of sin uh, on people that he cares about, and that touches the heart of God. I was convicted as I thought about that again this last week. It's, it's so easy to be complacent about pain and suffering all around us. And we see that Jesus Christ, when he sees what sin has done to the world, the suffering and the sickness and the hardship that is evident in the world, sees what happens to people when their loved one dies, even in this case, when he knows he's about to raise that loved one from the uh, from the dead. When Jesus Christ sees that, that touches the heart of God. And I have to ask myself, does that touch my heart? Now, could that be part of the secret of understanding, uh, receiving this comfort that Jesus Christ talks about in this beatitude? If I am not moved by what moves the heart of God, well, then I'm not going to be comforted by the comfort that God wants to give me. Well, the second incident and my third point uh, coming from the life of Jesus Christ is the second time he cries in Scripture is found in Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. Uh, this time he is going to Jerusalem. It's his uh, last journey to Jerusalem. You remember what happens as he sees the holy city? He weeps over the city. Now, why is he weeping over the city? Well, in this particular case, I'm not sure it's just because of the effects of sin. People are suffering and they're hurting and they're in pain. Uh, I think what he's doing here is now he's seeing a city that is full of sinners. And as he sees the city that's full of sinners, he's weeping for that city because he knows what their sinful condition means if they don't embrace him. He also knows what it means uh, if they don't deal with sin. So Jesus Christ is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. And I have to ask myself yet another question. As I look at the city of Plymouth, the city of Minneapolis, as I look at the great cities of the world, if Jesus Christ would be weeping for Minneapolis and Plymouth as he sees the evidence of sin, am I moved by what moves uh, the heart of God. Uh, this last week I came across this statement by Rabbi Zacharias, who, in my opinion, is one of the finest Christian apologists uh, in the world, literally, uh, today. He said on one occasion he was asked to speak on the subject of hell by Dr. Billy Graham. Uh, he said, I, I was not sure I was qualified. It's one of the most solemn truths in all the word of God. As I prayed and as I studied, I was reminded of what Robert W. Dale once said. The only man I can listen preaching to on hell is D.L. Moody, because I've never heard him talk of it without breaking down and weeping. Now, could it be 
that the secret of joy and happiness, the secret of receiving the comfort of God is having the heart of God. Weeping for what touches the heart of God, being motivated by what it is uh, that motivates our Savior. That led me to ask yet a second question for me in this uh, section. Okay, so if if the kind of mourning I'm supposed to be doing is mourning for personal sin, mourning for the effect of sin, mourning about sinners around me, well, how is it that I go through this mourning process? What's what's this this grief look like? There's got to be a right way of doing it. And a wrong way of doing it. What's the biblical way of doing it? John James and Frank Cherry have written a book on grief recovery. And they trace the story of a young boy by the name of Johnny. When Johnny was five, year old, five years old, his dog died. Johnny was stunned and he burst out crying. And uh, his uh, dad came into the room and he said, Johnny, it'll be okay. We'll get you another dog. Now, what did Johnny learn uh, in that first encounter with grief? What he learned is, uh, Johnny, what you need to do is to bury your pain uh, and recoup your loss. That's what you got to do. So uh, Johnny got a little older, met a uh, girl as he got high school age that captured his heart. And then she dumped him. Now, he's brokenhearted by that, came home, and he was talking to his mother, and his mother said, well, Johnny, there are a lot of other fish in the sea. What you need to do is just go out and find another girlfriend. So uh, what did he learn? Second valuable lesson. Well, what you need to do, Johnny, is bury your feelings. You need to recoup your losses. That's what you have to do. Johnny got a little bit older, and now his grandfather died. This was the man that taught Johnny how to be a man. He spent countless hours with his grandfather fishing and talking about uh, life itself. He was in school when he got the news. The teacher wanted to uh, inform Johnny about what was happening, but she didn't know how to tell him. Uh, so she said, Johnny, what you're going to need to do is go down to the office. Um, you just uh, wait there alone uh, for uh, a while and your father will come and get you. So Johnny learned the third step in the process that we Americans have uh, made our code for dealing with grief. You need to bury your pain, you need to recoup your losses, and you need to grieve alone. He came home uh, from the office. He wanted to run up to his mom. And his dad said, no, no, son, you can't bother your mother right now. She is all alone dealing with her pain. You need to go to your room. So Johnny went to his room to grieve alone, to think about recouping uh, his loss, and to bury his pain. Bill Hybels, reflecting on this book, made this uh, observation uh, that if we get it straight now, here's the American way. Let's review. Bury your feelings. Replace your losses. Grieve alone. Let time heal. Live with regret. Never trust again. Isn't that pretty much the American way? And then we wonder why we do not experience the comfort that God says we can have when he says, mourn, blessed are those who mourn, and they shall be comforted. What does God say? Turn with me to James chapter 4. James is the brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is another classic teaching passage on mourning. And here James is laying out for us what it is that we need to do. James chapter 4, let's start with verse 7. Page 1198 in your pew Bible. James 4, 7. 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, your sinners. Purify your hearts, you double minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So what's James saying? Well, over against the bury your feelings and replace your losses and grieve alone. James says, how about you try this? Why don't you draw near to God? Why don't you humble yourselves before God? There are four ways we can deal with any emotional pain. Uh, The first two we've mastered as Americans. The last two we're still trying to figure out. Uh, The four ways you can deal with pain. This is just classic psychology here. First thing you can do is you can repress your pain. And repressing your pain is burying it. Don't want to talk about it. I'm going to talk about it. You know, just and and then, of course, it's always there, ready to pop up again uh, at uh, any moment. Uh, The second thing you can do is you can express your pain. Now, sometimes that's helpful. More often than not, it's not helpful at all, because in expressing our pain, what tends to happen is that that sends us deeper in pain. Uh, I've mentioned this in the past. There used to be a branch of psychology called hostility therapy, where it was actually thought uh, that if you could spend an hour, you know, with the person that has irritated you, getting all your hostility out, that you'd feel better. You don't see any psychologists encouraging hostility therapy anymore because what they discovered is that after spending an hour telling your husband or your wife how awful they are, you become more convinced how awful they are. And normally that's the case. You know, you spend an extended period of time expressing your pain. You're going to feel worse. And that kind of dump and grunt psychology, as I call it, uh, hasn't been effective in the last 30 years. So the third thing you can do with your pain is you can suppress it. You say, how is that any different than repression? Well, suppression is different than repression in as much as now what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose not to think about that which makes me sad so I can do something more positive. It's expressed for us in Philippians chapter four, verse eight. Uh, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is admirable, whatever is pleasing. Uh, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. So uh, it's replacement therapy, in effect where I'm going to decide to think about what God wants me to think about. Instead of focusing on my pain and everything that's upsetting me, I'm going to get my stop-think card out. Remember, we've talked about that a number of times in the past. On one side of the card, I'm going to put Philippians 4, 4 through 7, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men and so on. Back side of the card, I'll have stop-think. And then as I pull my card out, instead of focusing on all the negative things, I'm going to say, okay, so is there something for which I can give praise here? Yeah, I can praise God for Jesus. I can praise God for the Bible. I can praise God for my godly grandmother who's impacted me, my godly friend who has been a support to me. So you praise God for all the things that you can think of that are praiseworthy. Put the card away. If you're feeling mad or bad or sad later, pull the card out, uh, read the phrase, stop, think, flip it over, read the verses. Now come up with a new list of things for which you can be thankful. The Bible says if you do that act of suppression, the peace of God will be with you. And I've done this with couples for 30, 40 years, and I know it's true. The fourth thing you can do with our pain is you can confess it. You can repress it. You can express it. You can suppress it. Finally, you can confess it. This is the most biblical thing of all that we can do. You come before God and you say, oh, God, I'm hurting. I'm miserable. God, help me to so focus on you 
and what it is that you have for me uh, that I can experience your comfort. Now, I need to add as a footnote, uh, don't hear me just say that you go to God, and you complain. Uh, because there have been a number of studies that have proven that if you go to God and as you pray, all you do is complain to God, you will actually feel worse, even though you're praying. You still have to get this right. As you go to God, you're praising God for your faith in him. You're focusing on what is true and positive. You're confessing sin where you need to confess sin. You're claiming forgiveness that is yours, but you're thinking biblically about who God is. And so that's going to give you hope. Uh, or the way this is expressed in Second Chronicles 15 two, if you seek him. He will let you find him. And that gets at the heart of it. When you're going to God with your pain, what are you looking for? You looking to complain to him about everything that's wrong? Or are you looking for a deeper, more profound relationship with God? Now, I wish I could get into this, but if you look at the wisdom books of the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Song of uh, Solomon, uh, the book of Job, those books make this clear assertion that in the midst of our pain, sometimes what we think is we need pain relief. And if you look at the wisdom books, they're going to say, no, 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 no. It's not pain relief. You're going to have pain all your life. You know, we just go from one pain to another pain. I mean, that's how we live our life. What you really need is a deeper, more intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And until you figure that out, you're going to continue to struggle uh, with pain. You're going to be upset with God because you don't know that God has something deeper for you. An intimate, more perfect relationship with him. Well, let's get to the second half of this, the grace part of this. Uh, if we mourn, uh, we will be comforted if we're doing the right kind of mourning. So uh, what, do, what do you mean by this uh, comforting? Well, comfort is comfort. You don't need to probe a whole lot into that. I think all of you know what comfort uh, is. I, I got another question. Why don't we get it? Obviously, there are a lot of people... Uh, who will claim that they've come before God and, and they have done whatever mourning, but they are not comforted at all. Why isn't it working? Well, a couple of reasons why we sometimes don't feel uh, like we're forgiven or comforted. Uh, first is because of guilt. In 1994, South African photojournalist Kevin Carter won the Pulitzer Prize for featured photography. Yeah, there's Kevin. And then his picture uh, that won him the prize is a picture of a vulture uh, overlooking uh, this uh, this girl, uh, a Sudanese girl uh, who's been over. She's on her way to get some food. Uh, she was too weak to continue on. So she fell over in that position. And uh, Kevin Carter took about 20 minutes framing the shot and then got the shot uh, and then submitted it. And he won the Pulitzer Prize for this particular shot. Naturally, after he got this fame, it was the most prized uh, achievement that any photographer could have. A number of people asked this question. Once you saw this girl in this condition, what did you do? You know what he said? I walked away. I just walked away. Well, you gave the reaction that he got. Uh, as uh, people in amazement realized he took this picture that made him a lot of money, won him a lot of prestige, and then he did nothing about it. Two months after he received the Pulitzer Prize, Kevin Carter took his own life. Uh, he penned out uh, a little note in his pickup truck, and what he wrote was, I'm really, really sorry the pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy does not exist. 
You get the feeling that Kevin Carter was mourning, but he was never comforted. I mean, that's screaming out, you know, from what he wrote. He was mourning the fact that he didn't do something about this girl, but he didn't understand what to do. And so uh, he was left to say, life doesn't have any meaning or purpose for me. Uh, it's uh, rather striking that in that same country, Samaritan Purse uh, is also uh, working. Dr. Warren Cooper is a Christian surgeon who works with Samaritan Purse in Sudan. And he's made this statement about the work that he does. He says, uh, the hospitals here are a living history museum of pathology. I mean, there's sickness and pain that he sees everywhere. He's been asked the question, well, how do you keep on, doctor? And he says, I think it would be hard to continue doing this if you didn't have an ultimate sense of meaning to what you're doing. And what is it that gives uh, Dr. Cooper meaning? Christ. You're not there to just do hospital work. Uh, he's there to help people understand that there's a Jesus Christ who cares about little girls who are suffering in Sudan. There's a Jesus Christ who says that there's a life after this one. And I came to die so that you might have assurance of life after this one. How else would you make any sense of doing work in a place like Sudan with this kind of suffering? Well, there's a second reason why I think sometimes we don't feel like we're comforted when we are mourning. Um, and it's because of the blame-shame game that we regularly play. You know, this is kind of amazing at one level. In October of 2005, there was a convicted murderer in Romania uh, who sued God for his troubled life, Pavel M. In his suit, he requested legal action against God, the resident in heaven, represented here by the Roman Orthodox, Romanian Orthodox Church, for committing the following crimes, cheating, concealment, abuse against people's interests, taking bribes, and trafficking, traffic of influence. Pavel also noted that God even claimed and received from me various goods and prayers in exchange for forgiveness and the promise that I would be rid of problems and have a better life. And according to his lawsuit, he said God didn't deliver on his end. Donald Drusky, here in the United States, also took God to court. One-time employee of USX Corporation blamed God for failing to rectify the wrong done to him when he was fired in 1968. In his suit, his suit read, The defendant, God, is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and he took no corrective action against the leaders of his church and his nation for their extremely serious wrongs, which ruined the life of Donald S. Drusky. For damages, Drusky asked for return of his youth, the skill of a great guitarist. I assume he wanted to be that great guitarist. The resurrections of his mother and his pet pigeon. Dresky hoped that God would fail to appear in court, allowing him to win his case by default. Now, you can look at this and say, obviously, these two guys weren't serious. Uh, they wanted to attract attention to themselves, but they were serious about this part. God let them down. And they wanted the world to know there's a God in heaven who has let me down. He gives certain promises in his word that he doesn't keep. And it begs this question I've been raising through this message. Is it true? Is it true? When God says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, uh, is that true? Turn with me to 1 John 1.8, and let's see if we can decide if it's true based upon what uh, John uh, says. What is it that we're supposed to do if we're going to receive this comfort? First uh, John 1.8, page 1207 in your pew Bible now. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. How about the first thing you do is examine yourself. God cares about sin, so should we. 
Now, here's the second thing you might do. First John 1 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, there are times we confess our sins. We don't believe God. God says, I'm going to forgive you if you confess and we confess. And God says it's done and we don't believe it. Well, then that's our problem. That's guilt feelings we're living with. It's not uh, based on what God says. God says he's going to forgive us. Notice what we see in the very next verse. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out a liar and his word has no uh, place uh, in our heart. So we need to uh, examine ourselves. We need to confess sin. And first John two, three, here's the third thing we need to do. Uh, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And what is my in my opinion has been a classic sermon preached in this uh, church a number of years ago. uh, David Stavros came and pointed out the problem that is so often evident in evangelical Christianity, where in uh, relating to the world outside the church, uh, we tell the world uh, that if you want to be a part of the church, you need to behave and believe and then you get to belong. And uh, that's very typical of what we do and say. David Stavros pointed out, and I think he's absolutely right, that if we examine Scripture carefully, we got that exactly backwards. Because God's message to the world is, uh, you trust Jesus Christ, you get to belong. Once you know that you belong and your sins are forgiven because you confess your sins, you're going to be so overwhelmed by that. If you really confess that you're going to say, I can't believe that Jesus Christ would accept somebody like me. And then that's going to lead to the second step in the process where you say, I'd I'd like to know what Jesus teaches. Uh, Where where do I find out what Jesus teaches? Well, how about we read the Gospel of Matthew, maybe the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Let's see what Jesus teaches. So now we're motivated to examine the teaching of Jesus because we've been overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. Once I've examined the teaching of Jesus, I'm still overwhelmed by the love of Jesus. I'm going to want to walk like Jesus walked and I will behave. So behavior is not something I'm doing as a legalist. I'm not doing it because it's my Christian duty. I'm not doing it because some pastor made me feel guilty. I'm doing it because I'm overwhelmed with the love of Jesus, which leads me to study his teaching, which motivates me to walk as Jesus walked, which is the fourth thing we see in 1 John 2, 6, where now uh, John pressing this home uh, even more uh, makes uh, this statement. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. And again, the must is there. Well, if you know him, if you really know him, if you experience his love, this is just what's going to follow uh, as a result. of. And one last thing. First John three, uh, three, where John uh, makes this statement. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What hope is that? Well, that's the hope in Christ that what Jesus said about his coming again, about his dying for us, that that's true. So it's all about Jesus. It's not about your works. It's not about your behavior. It's about what Jesus Christ has done. That's the secret of this comfort. One last thing. When we mourn the effects of sin. Now, we're not talking about our personal sin. We're talking about Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. There are times it seems like that works and sometimes when that doesn't work. Most of us know the name Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson would be one who would say it didn't work doesn't work. Uh, Marilyn Manson, in in fact, uh, has um, made this statement. Initially, I was drawn into the darker side of life, but it's really just human nature. I started to learn that everything that's considered a sin is what makes you a human being. All of the seven deadly sins are man's true nature to be greedy, to be hateful, to have lust 
And I think Marilyn Manson is right with that. I think we do have a sin nature. Of course, you have to control them. But if you're made to feel guilty for being a human being, then you're going to be trapped in a never-ending sin and repent cycle that you can't escape from. And you're going to be miserable. Ultimately, you'll be living in your own hell. So there's no need to worry about hell because hell will be here on earth. Now, Marilyn Manson marks himself as a rather significant theologian in that statement. Now, there's much that he says that I think is wrong, but there's a lot of what he says I think is right. I think it is our basic sin nature to commit all the seven deadly sins. I think it's true uh, that we need to be motivated to control sin. If you look at the statement, he's apparently not too motivated uh, because he in the end says, if you try to control sin, you're going to be miserable because you go through this guilt repent cycle that's going to commit you to a hell on earth. So just give up on controlling sin. Because who wants to live with this guilt and repent cycle that's going to make you miserable, make you feel like you're living hell on earth? Now, I can look at that and say, I think he's right about that last conclusion, too. If you haven't figured out how to get out of the guilt and repent cycle, you can find yourself living in a hell on earth. Uh, If you find yourself in a situation where you're overwhelmed by the your inadequacy or the inadequacy of people around you, I think you can feel like you're living uh, a hell uh, here on earth. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ says you don't have to live that way because blessed is he who mourns for they shall be comforted. So how is it that we respond to the effects of sin around us? Is there a better way than what Marilyn Manson proposes? Last story and I'm done. In 1873, Horatio Spafford, a wealthy lawyer from Chicago, placed his wife and their four children on the ship, and I'm going to mispronounce it, the Villa du Havre. Does anybody know French? Is that a French? I'm probably crucifying that. But anyway, this ship, this French ship going from New York to France. He was going to come in a, in a few weeks. On the evening of November 21st, uh, the ship heading toward France, was going across a calm Atlantic. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and suddenly there was a crash. The ship had been rammed by the Lockern, an English vessel, and began to sink. Um, the mom tried to gather her four children around her, but the waves took three of the older children off into the sea, and she never saw them again. She was clutching the youngest as she fell into the ocean, and a wave came and drug, drug the youngest away. She reached for the garment and grabbed it, started to pull that youngest back. And another wave came and swept that youngest a child away. She then became unconscious and was later uh, recovered. But all four of her children were swept away in the sea. Finally, she got to France and she sent this wire uh, to her husband. Uh, I'm safe. But the four children are gone. That was about all she was able to uh, put in the telegram. So Horatio Spafford got on a ship uh, sailing from New York over to France to be with his grieving wife. And as he was uh, sailing over, the captain of the ship uh, indicated at one point in time they came to what he believed was the very spot where uh, his wife's ship was rammed. And as he was uh, floating over that spot, 
Horatio Safford recognized this was his own valley of the shadow of death, if you're familiar with that in Psalm 23. And as he was sitting there in his own grief, thinking about his faith in Christ and his four daughters that was lost, uh, he penned a song many of us have heard entitled, It Is Well With My Soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Now maybe you know why that line is in there. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How could Horatio Spafford write that? As he's going over the very spot where his four daughters were taken from him. Well, the only way I know that a Christian could write something like that is he's got the gospel straight. Uh, he understands Genesis to Revelation. And he, and he knows that Jesus Christ came down to earth to suffer and die on a cross so that if we put our faith in him, we get to live forever. And he knew that his four children, though taken away and though he was grieving their loss, he was going to see them in heaven. Now, he could enjoy them here on earth for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. He could enjoy them for in heaven for trillions upon trillions of years. And so he was comforting himself in the comfort of the gospel. And you say, if you didn't know Christ, what else would you do? Well, you'd, you'd bury the pain, you'd try to recoup uh, your losses, and you'd grieve alone. So Jesus Christ in this great teaching tells us the truth when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they, and I can add, they alone will be comforted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that Jesus Christ has told us the truth. As we look at our mixed up world and see the goofy ways that we decide to deal with our own grief and our own pain, we can see the inadequacy. Certainly Marilyn Manson doesn't have it right. Little Johnny, who is told to bury his pain and to recoup his loss, he's not being told right either. And Father, so often in even our Christian homes, we, are, we get it wrong. He tells us that what we need to do is to draw near to you with the expectation that you, in fact, will draw near to us. That if any of us seek you sincerely, we will find you. Father, we confess sometimes that's not even what we want. We just want comfort. We want freedom from pain. We don't want a deeper relationship with you. We know that grieves you when we act that way, so forgive us for that. And Father, teach us what it really means to mourn biblically and then to be comforted biblically. Father, may we come to the point where we recognize that the grace that you've shown us through Christ Jesus is worth celebrating. That we can rejoice to the extent that we will say, Lord, we want to know what you teach. And so we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to study the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to learn more about what it is that you want us to see. And then come to that point where we're going to say, we want to live like Jesus lived. We want to walk the way that Jesus walked. Not because we're made to. Not because it's just our Christian duty. But because we want to. As we serve our Lord and Savior who gave his very life for us. Father, now as we celebrate what you did in sending your son Jesus down to earth, may you overwhelm us again with the significance of that graceful act. God, may we begin to capture what it means to rejoice in Jesus. And then, Father, once we've done that, 
May you motivate us to want to live according to your commandments and to walk as Jesus walked. In his name we pray.